Hello and welcome to One Decision, the show that brings you to the heart of the key decisions and their consequences that affect us all. Today we bring you a special episode. More than a month has passed since the invasion of Ukraine and we're seeing global shifts, realignments and looming threats on the horizon. And so we have enlisted some help with analysing what the near future may bring. I am delighted to be joined today by a formidable panel. We have, of course, my regular co-host, Sir Richard Dearlove. Richard, how are you? I'm very well. We also today have the Washington Post's Shane Harris, who covers intelligence and national security. And he's recently written a book on the rise of the surveillance state in America called The Watchers. Hey, Shane. Hi, Julia. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. And we also have Hassan Hassan, who is the founder and editor-in-chief of New Lines magazine and program director at the Center for Global Policy, also co-author of ISIS Inside the Army of Terror with Michael Weiss. Hassan, great to have you on. Oh, thank you, Julia. Right, so let's jump straight into this because we have a ton to get through. Now, we began last year with a world reeling from the pandemic, which was strangely unifying. Most countries around the world were experiencing some sort of lockdown. There were closed borders, health services straining under the pressure, with a few exceptions, such as the worsening Tigray crisis in Ethiopia and the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict reigniting. It was quite a quiet year in terms of conflict. This year, however, the crisis in Ukraine has overtaken COVID as the number one global security concern. First, I want to ask you, Shane, the Biden administration spent weeks warning the world that Russia was preparing an invasion. Why did nobody believe it until it was too late? It's such a good question. And the warnings were also so unusual in that, you know, as you all know, they consisted in part of declassified intelligence that the administration was putting out about what it knew and what it believed about Russia's plans and their intentions. Um, you know, it, it, it was met with some degree of skepticism. I think to some degree, perhaps it was natural in so far as people don't want to believe the worst. Um, obviously, there had been Russian troops massing at the border earlier in the year, and they effectively backed down. So that may have been a factor at play in the skepticism. Certainly in Ukraine, I know from talking to sources there that there was a real concern on the part of the president, President Zelensky, about igniting a panic among the people. Um, uh, we can maybe get into questions about why he maybe didn't take the warnings more seriously uh, beyond since they were shared with him directly by U.S. intelligence officials. But at least outwardly, he was trying to project a kind of an air of calm and a resolve uh, and, and I think to some degree some skepticism about Russia's plans for invasion. Um, and I often wonder too whether there's not a little bit in the background um, some thinking in some quarters that you know we've heard warnings, dire warnings from U.S. intelligence officials before that didn't exactly pan out as they described. Um, there may still be a little residual hangover from 2003 and warnings about weapons of mass destruction. Um, but you know ultimately I think that it was maybe just a tough thing for people to imagine that Vladimir Putin would actually end up doing what he did, which is to launch a full-scale invasion of the country with the name of uh, decapitating the government and taking it over. Uh, and that um, that was just a, 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 I don't want to say an unimaginable scenario, but I think that one that, particularly in some European capitals, they just found a little bit maybe hyperbolic. 
uh, and, and we're not seeing the intelligence with the same degree of dread as the British and the Americans. Did. Right. I mean, there was that really interesting exchange with, now it was either an Associated Press reporter or a Reuters reporter who was uh, pressing the Pentagon about this evidence. And this was before Russia launched the invasion. And I remember there being quite widespread doubt, scepticism. Was this the US administration actually talking about intelligence they had seen that uh, that showed plans for an imminent attack? Or was it the Americans really trying to trying to warn Putin to not to not launch an invasion? I mean, what kind of sense did you get from your sources in the world of intelligence about what was actually going on in, in those early days earlier this year? Yeah, and, and you raised the, a good point too, which is that you know there's the intelligence that they've seen and that they disclose, and then things that they didn't disclose. And when we talk about intelligence, we should specify too. I mean, the mainstream, so, so far as I can tell, involve satellite imagery, intercepted communications, and then probably some historical analysis of what Putin had done in the past. I don't get a sense that there was, at least in the U.S. side, any great human sources from inside the Kremlin telling them what was about to happen. Um, so some of that intelligence they could put out publicly, and they did. We published satellite photos uh, that had been declassified, and you could kind of compare those with publicly available satellite imagery, and you could physically see the troops and the material massing there. But then, and you point to that exchange with the Associated Press diplomatic reporter, um, where there, uh, I think that was, well, there was at least that one uh, in the State Department as well, where they were pressing and saying, look, well, where are these other reports? Where are you getting this from? Where are you getting talk among the generals? How do we know this? And of course, the administration had to say, look, we're not going to tell you everything about where this intelligence is coming from, but we can tell you that this is our conclusion. And there was, I think, a sense that because there were clearly authorized disclosures coming from the U.S. government, some things that you could physically see with your own eyes, some things you sort of had to take your word for it. There was a question of whether the administration was trying to also play a bit of an information operation with Putin and sort of get him to back down and warn him. And the administration actually kind of acknowledged that on one hand, there was an exchange, I can't remember off the top of my head when it was, but I believe it might've been with the State Department where they said effectively, look, you know, if we're wrong about this and Putin is not actually going to invade, we would rather be wrong and have warned people about something that didn't happen than be accused on the back end of not taking it seriously enough and telling people what we knew. So they clearly erred on the side of trying to disclose more. And the confidence ratings, I have to say, among my sources were always very high. They, they told me that the Americans and the British had basically judged with about 70 to 75 percent confidence Putin would go in. And I think at the end, of the, at the end, as he got closer, that was largely based on uh, intelligence agencies seeing the physical formation of the artillery of the tanks of the troops and realized that they were moving into an attack formation and that they wouldn't go to all of that trouble unless they intended to invade. And, and that sort of 70% certainty, I mean, given that Western intelligence had just totally failed to predict how easily Afghanistan was was overtaken by the Taliban. Do you think that played any kind of role in the eval- in the evaluation of that intelligence? I think that American officials certainly were still smarting from that, and I, and I do know from talking to some sources that that event left a number of people in the administration rather traumatized um, because there was so much that they did incorrectly gauge, including, frankly, I think that they were not predicating their analysis on um, uh, the Afghan administration simply fleeing the capital. 
Uh, and there was a real question, I think, among U.S. officials I spoke to before the invasion of Ukraine, whether or not Zelensky would hold out, whether he would try to leave, whether the Ukrainians simply would not be able to fight. There was a real doubt about the um, the readiness of the Ukrainian troops as well. But I think that does the Afghanistan experience does factor into it because there was so much that went wrong in the fall of Kabul, uh, even though intelligence agencies had been saying, look, this government could fall apart very quickly after U.S. forces leave. But I think that they um, wanted to make very, um, I don't want to say emphatic pronouncements about Ukraine, but they didn't want to be accused later of overlooking or underestimating anything. Right. Uh, so, Richard, in some of our conversations earlier this year, you characterised Russia as a failing power and its increasingly aggressive behaviour prior to the Ukraine invasion as indicative of a failing power lashing out. So is the war in Ukraine Putin's last roll of the dice, as it were? Does he have the Russian leadership with him on this? Or is this very much Putin's sole attempt at doing something that will burnish his legacy? Well, I think there's strong evidence, you know, of severe miscalculation, let's put it like that. And what the knock-on consequences are for Putin and his administration, it's hard to predict. But there's no question, you know, in my view that we have all the signs here of, you know, imperial decline of severe angst of a wish, you know, to assert their power and influence in those regions which they thought they could practically do so. And historically, Russia has always tried to dominate its periphery. And in a way, there's no more important part of greater Russia than Ukraine, if you characterize that historically. So it's, to an extent, understandable. I mean, I thought that Putin would ultimately take a rational decision, and the rational decision would not to have been to go ahead with a full-scale invasion. It would have been coercive diplomacy, bite off more of Donbass, and then, as it were, sit tight. And, uh, you know, we wouldn't probably have been, there wouldn't have been the action taken to dislodge you. So uh, I'm, uh, I think that it's very interesting about the intelligence predictions. I mean, I disagree slightly with one thing that, Shane had said, I do not think that there would have been those releases of intelligence if there hadn't been significant human. You never release human. You only release human if you can corroborate it with other issues, which they clearly could do with satellite and all the other stuff. Um, and I mean, what I thought was striking were the predictions that the invasion was going to go ahead. And uh, to me, that was, you know, almost countercultural because it's such a crazy decision to take. Uh, and we've now seen the consequences of that decision for Russia and how this will play out, I'm not going to try to predict. Um, so, uh, I, I mean, I think that, you know, my, my conclusions are that this is very much uh, an imperial power struggling with the issue of its decline. Uh, and of course, there's no worse indication of the decline than how it suffered military inside Ukraine. Um, and the predictions that um, Putin must have received from their 
I'm sure, very significant intelligence coverage inside Ukraine. It's not difficult when you've got a population which is partly, you know, Russian or ethnically Russian to recruit sources. Uh, yet they could get their estimates so thoroughly wrong. And it's extraordinarily, you know, surprising how determined the Ukrainian resistance has been. But I mean, I think what is even more extraordinary is the strength of the Ukrainian identity as a separate identity from Russia, um, you know, which historically would be hard to argue in some respects, which is what Putin argues. But, you know, over the last 50 years or however long you like to calculate it, you know, clearly there has a set, you know, Ukraine has, 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 has seen its destiny as, 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 as separate from Moscow's. Um, and, you know, we're sitting now on a series of such seminal events in terms of the future uh, security of the European continent. I mean, for me, the, the, the most important change, the biggest change, the most significant change is the change in Germany's attitude towards uh, European defence. And, and th this is massive. Um, and we'll have to see, you know, what consequences it has over the next three, four, five years. It's not going to happen immediately. And of course, then the whole issue of energy security and how energy security now ties in to the security of every independent European nation in relation to how its energy is supplied. Right. I just want to go back, give it, given what, what, you, what you said about about so much of Putin's decision to, to go into Ukraine has to do with this post-imperial anxiety. I mean, a, a lot had been has been made of Russia's disappointing military strategy on the field in Ukraine. And we had quite an extraordinary um, uh, almost turnaround from the Russians signaling that they were shifting their military strategy in Ukraine to really solidifying their grip on the Donbass region, which was a region that was already occupied by Russia before the February 24th invasion was launched. And then you had President Biden uh, is making that sort of hashed uh, comment about inadvertently calling for regime change. Do you think Biden's words, um, uh, and, and anyone who, who's, who's interested in this can answer, do, 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 has Biden's words, will that have changed the calculus for Putin? He is a man that is very sensitive to criticism. What is the danger there of the United States explicitly calling for regime change, even if the White House and the government no. have tried to walk back some of those comments? No. Biden's dilemma, and it's a dilemma for every democratic leader, is do you make public statements as a diplomat or do you make public statements as a politician? And it's absolutely clear, this wasn't a gaffe in my opinion. He was making a public statement as a politician. And what Western politician would disagree with him in the cold light of day if they had to sit down and have a one-to-one? -one? He's being criticized for not having made a diplomatic statement. And I mean, I was listening to Kim Derrick, our recent ambassador, to the United States, you know, as it were, criticizing Biden. And I mean, in a way, justifiably. But is Biden's role in future to be a diplomat and try to secure 
a peace agreement, or is he, as it were, behaving as the leader of the Western world and making a political statement? I mean, let, let, let's go back, you know, and sort of envisage the Second World War. Would Churchill have made diplomatic statements about Hitler, or would he have made political statements about Hitler? I'm pretty sure that Churchill's statements about Hitler were absolutely basically political in terms of the values. I, I mean, the question is, how do we judge this crisis? And how do we see this crisis? So I'm a bit surprised by the way in which there has been this, let's say, politically correct reaction to Biden and criticising him for behave, not behaving as a diplomat. He but but then why walk back those comments and say, and the way the White well, House did? I, say, no, I, no, no, I, he's not calling for regime change. It's, it's well, not I mean, about I, Putin. I think, I, I, I'm aware, in a way, I would have preferred to see the Democratic administration blink and r- rally behind the president and say, well, look, let's face the reality. This is a a catastrophic crime. I mean, a quarter of the Ukrainian population has been displaced. Um, This is, you know, four or five million refugees. I mean, this is, I mean, I'm lost for words in a way because of the extremity of what's happened. Um, So, and the, the question is about, you know, maybe peace negotiation. But I mean, in a way, the negotiation isn't going to come out of accommodating Russia. It's going to come out of the fact that the Russian military are failing to win this war and maybe are forced to back off. And, you know, if if you ask me personally, as, as quite an elderly gent now who's been following geopolitics for a long time, I would love to see uh, Putin deposed by a palace coup, um, you know, and OK, we're still going to have to deal with some intransigent Russian leadership, but possibly uh, a leadership that understands the weakness of Russia's position in relation to what's happening at the moment. I wanted to ask Hassan, um, given that the Syrian army, uh, sorry, given that the Russian army was most recently tried and tested in Syria, fighting a totally different war to the current situation inside Ukraine. How, hasn't, how do you think Russia's military strategy was maybe falsely informed by the fighting they did in Syria, thinking that they would be fighting the same kind of war in Ukraine? So in, in many ways, they did learn from Syria and they're replicating some of the lessons they learned from Syria in the sense that in terms of disinformation, uh, in terms of the uh, tactics they used, uh, you know, even uh, use of uh, foreign or like, you know, uh, troops, non-Russians on the ground, militias and, and so on and so forth. Uh, it's been uncanny in that sense. Uh, so people who followed uh, Syria from before kind of recognize a lot of what's happening in Ukraine today. Um, but generally, as everyone has said, uh, I think uh, Putin has uh, overestimated uh, the, you know, the, the uh, maybe not his power, but probably also uh, underestimated the U.S. the U.S. and Western uh, reaction to it. A, a lot of people, I mean, we we've been doing stories from the ground in Ukraine, and one of the earliest uh, dispatches that we did uh, was. Uh, I remember at the time I thought it was grandstanding from Ukrainians to say we're going to fight and we're going to defeat the Russians, right? 
but then, uh, be, you know, because nobody, as Shane said, even the U.S. Uh, was expecting uh, the president to flee. They offered him a ride. He refused. Uh, so the fact that the Ukrainians kind of fought back is quite uh, quite interesting and surprising to many people. Uh, I imagine, including to uh, Putin, and in many ways, also if you follow, if you had followed Syria uh, before, you would also recognize that Russia has used some of the relentless air campaigns in places like Damascus, at the outskirts of Damascus, and in Aleppo, and those campaigns actually took many many months. You know, even though. Uh, Syrians, uh, Syrian rebels in this case, were, uh, you know, facing similar campaigns for, for several years before that. So after all this time, uh, they still uh, resisted and were able to sort of face, uh, you know, these, these campaigns by the Russians. So, uh, you know, in some ways it's not surprising, in many ways probably it, it is surprising that people thought uh, the Ukrainians will cave, uh, Putin will, uh, uh, you know, uh, prevail uh, soon enough. So, I mean, the the majority of of Russian uh, forces fighting in Syria was was largely its air force carrying out bombing campaigns. We have a lot of similarities between how Ukraine is being attacked to how Syria was attacked. Uh, civilian infrastructure being targeted. Uh, in Syria, we saw a lot of those horrific bunker busting bombs targeting people hiding in basements. I think we've yet to see that being used in Ukraine. But I mean, what what have you made of a lot of the footage of young Russian conscripts, tanks, ground forces being stymied, clearly being unprepared for what they were being sent into? Were you surprised by seeing that side of the Russian military? I think also, uh, you know, that some of that happened in Syria. Uh, I remember uh, vaguely that some of the most embarrassing footage of uh, Russians not able to fire rockets and, and things like that from uh, in Syria uh, happened early on. You know, that's why some people are saying the Russians were actually testing weapons inside Syria early on. Uh, the trying, you know, some of the tactics and, you know, social media obviously helped uh, kind of show some of these uh, you know, fail, failings on the part of the uh, Russians, uh, Russian military. So in a way, Russia is not that impressive when it comes to sort of street to street, uh, you know, fighting and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, that was expected. The only thing that worked for the Russians, and by the way, even ISIS recognized this early on, is that is basically the sheer uh, uh, bombardments uh, and and the fact that they were bombing anything using like uh, dumb bombs and and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, I remember even ISIS were saying the Americans are actually uh, easier to evade because the Americans are more precise when they strike uh, ISIS. So they strike a, a building, sometimes half a building where ISIS resides or ISIS fighters, uh, whereas the the Russians would just drop things on the ground, right? Less uh, concerned so way, with hitting civilians, it would. Yeah, seem. so that that's really what's working for the Russians, not not smart, you know, uh, you know, weapons and uh, and and that and that, and that's really what uh, everyone's fearing. That's why people are concerned about chemi chemical weapons and and those uh, types of, uh, of of tactics. Right. There's one thing I, that I I find really really interesting that I would love to get your thoughts on, and that's that the Syrian government 
owes its survival to the Putin regime. And we've seen reports recently of recruiting centres in Syria that fighters may be sent from the Syrian Republic Republic to fight in Ukraine. There's been some pictures circulating on social media in recent days of Syrians protesting with the letter Z, showing solidarity apparently with Russia. I should be clear that those pictures appear to show pro-Assad factions in Syria. There have also been a lot of anti-Putin protests by opposition Syrians. Russia famously bombarded Aleppo and other previously rebel-held areas, hitting schools and hospitals and other civilian targets, as we've discussed. Hassan, what do you make of these reports of Syrians getting involved in this war? Have we actually seen any in Ukraine? Uh, We've certainly had that announcement of these recruiting centres opening in Syria, but have these fighters been on the ground yet, as far as you know? So much of this is really about how the Syrians feel compelled, the Syrians in the case of the pro, pro-regime Syrians, feel compelled to show solidarity to Russia and Putin rather than really feeling they, they obviously uh, that Putin needs them on the ground. So uh, you, you have to sort of consider that element, that when Shia forces in Iraq or Syrian uh, pro-regime uh, fighters, uh, you know, say we want to go and fight on the side of Putin. It's really a statement, uh, in a lot of ways. It's, it's a political statement uh, saying, basically, we're stand against America, against the West, uh, in uh, you know, uh, on the side of Putin. And uh, it's quite, quite fascinating. I mean, if you zoom out a little bit and see how uh, this whole war uh, is viewed in in places like the Middle East and South Asia, uh, and how it feels close. You know, there's a, there have been a lot of uh, you know recent fights, whether you're talking about Kazakhstan or um, uh, or uh, you know in Armenia and in, in different places. It, uh, these wars did not feel as close to people from the Middle East, and I think part of it is because they felt that Putin is standing up to. Uh, the uh, Western uh, Western powers, but a lot of sympathy actually uh, for the Ukrainians because of what Putin did in Syria and places like that in in, in Libya as well, standing uh, with the warlord against a democratic uh, kind of an internationally recognized government, uh, and it it's uh, in in a way the same. Uh, I think you know part of uh, uh, probably a, a big part of this is uh, how uh, the image of Putin has been uh, has been altered in many parts of, of the world for and I would say the same effect uh, is happening now uh, for Russia uh, as uh, it happened to the US after Afghanistan meaning uh, I think Putin is uh, Putin's image as a savvy leader and a reliable uh, partner in places like the Middle East has been shattered in in many ways. Uh, You know, people, uh, Putin uh, has built a reputation or had built a reputation before as almost the heir of uh, kind of this, like he's going to be the next superpower, uh, you know, force that you can rely on at least in, in the places where the U.S. is 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 leaving, uh, you know, Afghanistan was the latest example, and now they see that Putin cannot even defend himself; he can't protect uh, his own uh, neighborhood. So, in that sense, I think Putin has lost much of the goodwill and political capital that he uh, built over the years in places like the Middle East and South Asia. Shane, I see you nodding quite a lot. Yeah, I think I think it's 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 so interesting to think about how <clears throat> even Putin is 
how the image of him has changed in the United States since the war began, which is not to say that people in the United States had warm feelings towards Putin. But I, I think that, you know, the U.S. intelligence community and the national security establishment was turning its attention towards China. And it's not to say that they were disregarding Russia. Uh, you know, the CIA is led by the former ambassador to Russia, I mean, who was dispatched to go meet with Putin and before this invasion began. But there was a sense that the strategic focus of the U.S. was shifting and it was kind of realigning. And now Putin has kind of reappeared with Russia and asserted himself in this way. And it's like you see you hear people kind of talking more in the rhetoric of the Cold War again. And it almost like it's happened overnight and reminded people that, you know, Putin is a force to be reckoned with. And I mean, in the Trump administration, I think people were almost you know, used to him as being kind of this this figure that the president had this weird affection for and he wanted to interfere in our elections. But, you know, he was a declining power and he wasn't going to be able to assert himself in Europe, certainly. Um, and so that's just been a remarkable shift to watch. And and even just going back to the, the what Richard Richard was saying about you know Biden's statement as being a political statement and not a diplomatic one. You know, absolutely. And I don't think that it was necessarily a slip of the tongue. I think the president genuinely feels that Putin is not someone who the United States and Europe can can tolerate as having in power. Um, at the same time, I think one of the reasons why the White House moved so quickly to clean that statement up, and even the president next day tried to sort of say, I don't mean regime change, is, you know, there is this <clears throat> palpable, and it's, they say it, but you can really feel it in talking to officials too in the administration, feeling of not putting Putin into a corner and of not escalating this conflict. And even the concept of escalation has been a little bit distorted here in this in this war. But this feeling of, you know, we really would like Putin to go, but we really, really don't want to be in direct conflict with Russia. And so they find themselves in this kind of very awkward place where they don't want to antagonize him. They certainly don't want to corner him, but they have to make political pronouncements about him. And it's just it's it's challenging and you see them improvising a little bit here. Right. I mean, the number of times I've seen in the press the story repeated of Putin saying he, this rat that he found in an apartment when it was cornered jumped up and tried to bite him. I mean, clearly that is a metaphor for how the world is scared of putting Putin in a corner lest he lash out. He's already been talking about moving the nuclear weapons around. I think it's really interesting what you say about, um, about how the world had been, particularly the West, had been sort of... Um, focusing on countering a rising China and how, you know, the how the war in Ukraine might have affected or maybe it hasn't affected China's ambition. What impact do, do we think that the war in Ukraine is going to have on this sort of anti-Western alliance that appears to be dividing the world. I mean, we've seen most countries in the United Nations voted a few weeks ago to condemn Russia's behaviour, but notably the vast majority of international states have not opted to sanction Russia outside of Europe, the US, Canada, and I think staunch US allies, Japan, South Korea, and then Singapore, the only countries in Asia to implement sanctions. There were no countries on the African continent or the Middle East, no countries in Latin America taking part in those sanctions either. I'm going to throw this out to all of our speakers. What is what is our take on this? Well, I'll just offer up some first thoughts, which is, you know, I think that 
there is that sense, right, that, that China and Russia are kind of entering into this, you know, I don't know if we want to think about it as the anti-democratic alliance, because it doesn't break out so neatly, because uh, there are democratic countries that have not taken as hard line against Russia. Um, I can say from talking to administration officials in the past couple of weeks, I think they see a real opportunity in the invasion of Ukraine to strengthen our resolve against China, uh, which is to say that the Biden administration seems to feel very confident that China is watching NATO's resolve in responding to Russia and the implementation of these sanctions and taking a lesson and have thinking twice about whether they would try and take Taiwan. Um, so they seem to think in the Biden administration that this is an opportunity for the U.S. and its allies in NATO to flex its muscles against China and that China being pragmatic as it is. Uh, is not necessarily ready to openly just embrace Moscow and make it the junior partner in some new anti-democratic alliance. I mean, it was, I think the Biden administration was very encouraged that when Putin went to China, essentially, you know, begging for weapons and money and food, even for his troops, they felt that the Chinese were going willing to provide some support, but would not cross the line of providing weapons. And I think the, the Biden administration was very encouraged by that. Um, but there's no doubt that, you know, you know, Russia is becoming the junior partner, maybe in some sort of new alliance. China's it's me. It's maybe it's really only powerful friend. And that, too, is going to change the strategic view. I think certainly of the intelligence agencies that I cover of like saying, are these two powers coming more into alignment now against the West? And I mean, that's the fascinating game that's going to play out for months and years, I suppose, to come. But at least in the short term, it doesn't seem to me that the White House is too worried about Xi and Putin forming some huge new military alliance. I think that they think that they're sending a very clear message to Beijing, uh, uh, reflecting kind of off what's happening in Ukraine. Right. And I think something that is really interesting is India and the stance that India has taken. And it wasn't too long ago, uh, Richard, you were talking with Julie Bishop, who was a fo former foreign minister of Australia, and she was talking about India as a member of the Quad and how it was sort of joining the club of countries that were trying to counter China. And we've recently seen the Russian Ministry of, for, um, of, of Foreign Affairs praising India, praising India as a supporter of Russia. Richard, is, is India still a partner of the West? Yes, definitely. I mean, don't be deceived. I mean, Modi's just being cautious. And you have to remember in the case of India, the sort of ghost of the non-aligned movement and the role that India played in the non-aligned movement uh, and it was very keen, you know, to stand, you know, between East and West. And I think one has seen that in terms of the way that uh, Modi has reacted. I mean, he, he why, why should he, um, you know, compromise India's position at this moment by taking a definite stand? But I think in the medium term, you know, what's important to India isn't what's happening in Russia. It's what's happening in China and what's happening in the Pacific. And um, I think that you will see there's a consistency in India's attitude on these issues. And, um, you know, I, I think that India will continue to be supportive of an initiative like AUKUS and um, looking to build its alliances, worrying about China in the future. I mean, I think the, the issue, the question we need to ask ourselves is, 
is Ukraine a cautionary China, a cautionary tale for China, or is it an encouraging tale for China? I think that it, my interpretation at the moment in the way that Xi has reacted in a sort of reserved fashion, it's a cautionary tale for China. And it's going to make China much, much more careful about the way that it plays its cards internationally in terms of its relationship ultimately with the United States. I mean, let's you know be realistic about the future of global security. Pax Americana is going to become Pax Americana et Pax Sericana or Serica or whatever the exact Latin term is. And that's what is in Xi Jinping's mind. Uh, and, you know, obviously people are drawing parallels with Taiwan. But, I, I mean, the lesson for China at the moment in relation to Taiwan is very, very cautionary. I mean, an amphibious invasion of an island which is mountainous which has all the sophistication and training of modern weaponry, and it's we've seen what's happened in Ukraine, there's no way that China is going to, as it were, feel a loyalty to Putin's Russia and build some close alliance, which ultimately is going to militate against China's influence, China's soft power, China's opportunity to play a constructive role on the world stage. Now, okay, China's an uncomfortable partner. We all know that. And there's been a huge shift in US policy of which, you know, I think is very sensible and, and of which we're very supportive. But I think this will have put the brakes on a lot of China's ambitions. And, and specifically in relation to India, I don't think you're going to see a shift and ultimately a strategic shift in India's attitude towards the West. Um, I, I mean, in India, remember, is the world's largest democracy and a relatively successful democracy at that. Um, and, it, you know, it, it doesn't... The, 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 Modi's government may have some autocratic characteristics, but it isn't an autocratic government, ultimately. It's a democratic government. Right. I mean, you, you say that India is trying to not get involved, but certainly the way the Russians are speaking, they count India as one of their supporters in, in yeah, the prism well, think, of this conflict. I, I think they're frankly kidding themselves. I mean, you know, there, there's no way if, if, if the chips were down and Modi had to make a choice, he's not going to choose Russia in these circumstances. And I mean, you know, let, let's well, I mean, I reiterate, remind ourselves about what Russia is. You know, this is a declining imperial power with a relatively tiny GDP that certainly doesn't have the power to sustain uh, the, the troublemaking, well, unless it starts a nuclear conflict. Okay, I mean, I, but, but I don't think we're going to go down that track personally. I, I mean, you know, this is going to cause a huge destabilization. And ultimately, the country that is going to suffer most is Russia itself. Uh, we've talked a lot about sort of Russia being in decline and will be declining further through this very, very costly invasion. 
The reaction of the world, I think, has taken a lot of people by surprise. We got that united response on SWIFT. We got unlikely allies in Switzerland and Hungary in joining sanctions against Russia, even the Kazakhstan government, uh, which was propped up by the Russians uh, not too long ago uh, amid protests earlier this year. Is Russia really alone? I mean, given when we look at the map of countries that have sanctioned Russia, most of those countries are exclusively countries in the West, uh, Europe, and countries such as South Korea and Japan that are utterly reliant upon the United States for their defence. Is Russia really alone in, in this fight or is the huge absence of, of international states joining in those sanctions indicative that actually maybe there are more people who are not willing to join the US in this than, uh, than not? Well, I would invert the question and say, does Russia have any reliable allies? Um, and I think if you look at it in that light, you would be hard pressed to say who would line up with Russia, you know, militarily and economically in the medium to longer term. I mean, obviously, when you have such a seminally divisive event globally, there are going to be a lot of countries that will sit, well, they, they, won't, they will sit on the fence for as long as they can without defining their position. But if, if they're forced to define their position, then you should, as it were, try to identify which side they will fall. And I think if you say who, who would be and who are Russia's reliable allies, then it's very hard to start enumerating a list beyond Bielo Russia. I mean, you know, the, you, you, maybe Kazakhstan to an extent, um, and, you know, maybe for issues of convenience, there will be other small nations that will line up with them. But I can't see even the China. I mean, the, the key issue is China and how China behaves towards Russia through this crisis. And um, I think that China is going to be extremely careful and cautious without necessarily offending Putin to make sure that it retains its independence of decision-making. I want to turn the discussion slightly because one sphere in which we are seeing this conflict impact so many of us is it is exacerbating uh, an energy crisis that is being felt all over the world. And one thing that I think is really interesting, may or may not be a wild card, card in this, is the fact that we have the Iran deal, uh, which is being negotiated. We've seen talks resume, and while not officially related, there was also this huge symbolic step forward recently when British hostages in Iran were released back home after a long-standing debt owed by the British government was finally paid to Iran. Iran is desperate to sell the West its oil. Is the current boycott of Russian energy going to make a deal more likely? Hassan, do you have any thoughts on that? So I think, uh, you know, this process is going to take some time uh, anyway. Uh, now, you know, this goes back to American allies and how they dealt and they reacted to this, uh, you know, to this uh, crisis. 
uh, you know, from India, you know, it had India supporting Russia in a way, but also India's rival Pakistan supporting uh, Russia and the Gulf states and the oil rich uh, countries in, in the region also uh, not really standing with the U.S. and kind of following what the U.S. is trying to, uh, to achieve by, you know, kind of uh, lowering the prices of oil uh, oil and, uh, and, and such. Um, I think this all has to do with two things. One is basically that uh, so much has been pinned uh, hope uh, pinned on in Russia by these allies, and they they're not going to just give up on Russia. Uh, on Russia, and this actually goes back to some of the closest American allies to Turkey. Uh, you know, made uh, quite deep. Uh, you know, whether you're talking about energy, uh, politics, and military, uh, uh, you know, alliance with uh, with Tur- with uh, Russia since to, uh, 2016. And uh, yet they still try to sort of uh, stand with with Ukraine uh, in this crisis, this crisis, but they still really didn't go all all the way uh, against Russia. And, uh, you know, uh, that's one element of it, that there's so much has been built between these countries and Russia, but also so much has been destroyed between the U.S. and these countries uh, over the past few years in terms of trust. You know, do we trust like if if the Americans want to need us now? Do we switch side and just go with the U.S.? Uh, what happens uh, the day after? A lot of people uh, from India to Pakistan to the Gulf states are thinking about the day after. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't think the Iran deal would save the day because I think it's going to take a while anyway. It's, gonna, it's not going to happen in one day, even if, it, if the deal happens uh, tomorrow. Mm. I, th- I think it's really interesting that you bring up Turkey because I think something that I, I find quite peculiar is that Turkey... Turkey w- was criticised, was it not recently, for buying that missile system from Russia, which is now, I think, it's it's either been sending those missile systems to Ukraine or there's been talk of the Turks sending that, that those missile systems to Ukraine to use against the Russia. I mean, the complicated diplomatic dance that so many of these countries are having to do is mind-bending. <laughs> Yeah, back in the day in the Cold War, the one had to just pick a side. Now they can't pick a side; they have to strike a balance. And and for Iran too, you know, Julia, and you talk about the negotiations. I mean, Iran in watching the way that the West has been so cautious with Russia because it has a nuclear arsenal. That is the factor, the X factor underlying all of this. Iran's just been given a case study for why it's important for them to have a nuclear weapon (laughs) because once you have that, you have just this profound leverage, uh, uh, clearly, and, and understandably so. I'm not saying that the Biden administration is calculating that way. But, you know, every step that the United States is taking, they keep that in mind. And here, you know, not only does Iran have a reason now to want a weapon, but lots of countries do. I mean, and, and I'm, I, I worry whether this has, you know, been one of the greatest incentives to create, you know, mass proliferation and, and acquisition of nuclear weapons that we've seen in some time. If no one is going to be a winner of this conflict, certainly uh, arms manufacturers may end up uh, reaping the rewards. Hassan, I think that's what you mentioned about Gulf allies not standing entirely with the US, I think is really interesting. And and in particular, I wanted to ask about the UAE, because the UAE has been increasingly working with Russia and uh, most recently, symbolically, I think really importantly, uh, to reintegrate Bashar al-Assad back into the Arab fold after years of him being isolated during the Syrian civil war. 
Isn't the UAE supposed to be a close ally of the West? What is going on there? So on one hand, the UAE doesn't feel uh, it's under so much pressure to listen to the US. You know, it's not the Trump administration, it's Biden administration. That's one thing. The second thing is there's a lot of a lot of it has to do with economics as well. The, the UAE has been moving away from its uh, previously aggressive uh, policies in the region into making friends and making amends with the former uh, foes like Turkey, Qatar, uh, you know, other play, uh, uh, you know, even Iran has been visiting uh, Iran a lot. Um, and there's also the healthy pressure on kind of the strikes that, you know, uh, coming from or the bombings come from uh, uh, from uh, from Yemen. All that has to do with needing more from the U.S. and not needing to listen to the U.S. And the economics of it is basically they, they don't want to basically just, um, uh, you know, uh, lower uh, the prices of oil or doing something that there's there's basically uh, the UAE first policy. And uh, that's. That's coming uh, at a time when the when the UAE feels they need more from the US, uh, kind of in terms of compromises. Uh, the Saudis are the same story. They also want it just happened at the same time where there's so much pressure from the Houthis in Yemen, and they want something from the US in exchange for any any sort of deal with uh, with the US. Yeah, I agree. I mean, M M MBZ. Mohammed bin Salman has always sort of played both ends against the middle. He's quite skillful at doing that. And he will be, you know, trying to squeeze every inch of advantage for him, his regime out of the current situation. And there's quite a lot for him to squeeze out. But a fundamental break with the US, no way. We have just a few minutes left. So I want to ask uh, a question to each of our panel here. Uh, whether it is the... German reverse ferret on its defense policy or whether it is the revelation that Putin is not a 4D chess master after all. What is the key consequence, key revelation, key development of this uh, of this crisis and and which is the most important one that we should we should be aware of in the coming months uh, to come? I'm going to start with Shane. Well, I'll, at the risk of repeating myself, I'll say, you know, I think the most important strategic revelation, at least the one that's impressed me the most, is, you know, what an, an powerful incentive this creates for other countries to have nuclear weapons as a leverage. Um, but I'll pick another one, actually, that I think that has been really on the minds of my sources and the intelligence communities. And it's much more of a, it's an immediate tactical question. But yes, the intelligence community made great predictions about the invasion of Russia or invasion of Ukraine by Russia. But it seems that they wildly overestimated the capabilities of the Russian military. And that is something that a lot of my sources are scratching their heads and saying, wait a minute, how did we, why did we think this military was, you know, 100 feet tall when it can't even get trucks onto trains uh, and to take this country that we all thought would fall in 72 hours? Um, General Barrier, who runs the Defense Intelligence Agency, was asked about this question in an open Senate hearing and said something that was remarkable to me, which was, Ultimately, we based our assumptions of the Russian military performance on Putin's assumptions of the Russian military performance, which turned out to be very, very flawed. Uh, and so I think this is an occasion where probably a lot of governments, particularly the United States, are going to be reassessing, you know, to a degree, um, how strong is this military? 
and, and possibly what it would take for Putin to spend some years regrouping uh, and possibly trying this again if he ultimately has to sort of take a pass on this first invasion of Ukraine and reach a settlement on negotiation. I can't imagine Putin licking his wounds for, mm-hmm. for long, I have to say. Yeah. Hassan, same question to you. So I think the most interesting one, also uh, repetition, which is I think the war in Ukraine uh, has the same effect on Putin and Putin image. And and that actually has practical consequences for Putin in the future. Uh, Like I said, the same effect as the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and that shattering of the image that, you know, uh, 20 years of war, you leave with with uh, with basically with the. Uh, without doing anything, uh, the same forces are back into the country. Uh, and, uh, you know, the practical consequences for these uh, should not be underestimated. Uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, are is now being treated by even small countries like UAE and Qatar and others like it's a small uh, player. Obviously, there's a special dynamic here that the U.S., they know the U.S. is power. Nobody underestimates the U.S. power, but they... They probably uh, know uh, the American will and ability to do something in terms of damage to to them if they say no to it. Uh, And I think that damage to Putin's image in the world is real. Uh, It's not something that we saw before, that he is not that smart. He's not that, uh, that, you know, that uh, uh, powerful. Uh, Now, that said, I don't think, you know, to Shane's uh, point earlier, uh, I don't think that changes the fact that Putin is dangerous and Russia will remain uh, a threat. That's not exclusively or mutually exclusive in that sense. Uh, you know, um, it will it will be, you know, uh, we were st- we were looking at this from a Western perspective. We think that because Putin is licking his wounds and, and uh, you know, wounded by this war, that that's not a victory for him. But actually, Three months from now, four months from now, from now, if the outcome is destroyed, Ukraine, uh, you, you know, destroyed the capital, uh, like uh, devastated uh, economy, and uh, other neighboring countries are looking behind their shoulders, that is a victory for Putin if he stays in power. Obviously, very, very good point, Richard. I would guess that you, the answer to that to that question to you is going to be Germany's change in policy. Well, Germany's changed in policy, but I would actually generalise it further than that and say that energy security has become the primary issue of national security, which is a huge shift. And I don't think that we should ignore the impact on business and uh, the the business of business. Uh, ESG loses its E. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, the reluctance of the world's investors to invest in energy companies is blown away overnight because suddenly it becomes respectable as an issue of national security uh, as opposed to zero carbon to invest in energy companies. So, you know, this is going to have a a huge commercial impact as well. And, of course, one shouldn't also ignore the knock-on effects of, of the rise of commodity prices. I'm thinking about the grain market and the impact in the higher cost of food will have in the Middle East and in Africa. So, I mean, I agree with the, with the points made by um, Shane and Hassan, but I think it, just to add a different perspective, I, I would put the energy security issue to the forefront. And of course, that is absolutely crucial for Germany of all countries. 
That's it for this week's episode of One Decision. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. From me and the team, thanks for tuning in and see you next week.